This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Jennifer Saint, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, now Jennifer's um, in the UK and of course I'm here in Sydney uh, and we're here to chat about um, the genre, the mythical genre, which has always been of interest to me, but I'm not a huge um, reader. And also this is a kind of a, it's it's a it's a genre within a genre, if you like. Is that right? Yeah, well, I think there's so many genres within the genre of Greek mythology, which makes it just this kind of endlessly rewarding body of stories to to draw from, I think. You know, there's tragedy, there's romance, there's love, there's adventure. Uh, There's just so much in there. Yeah, okay. Let me introduce her. So Jennifer has a, a lifelong fascination with ancient Greek mythology, She read classical studies at King's College London. Wow. Since September 22, she's been a visiting research fellow in the classics department there. In between, she spent 13 years, 13 as an English uh, teacher, sharing a love of literature and creative writing with her students. Ariadne, is that how I pronounce it? Ariadne. Ariadne is her first novel, Electra is her second novel, and Atalanta is her latest retelling of the only female Argonaut. It really is, for me to read a a fiction book like this, is I have to let go of everything I know, don't you? You just got to immerse yourself in it. I guess it's like reading fantasy. I mean, absolutely. It's fantasy. And I really lean into that element of it because for me, the gods and the magical part of mythology is what makes it so exciting. So yeah, it's definitely part part of the fantasy genre. Yeah. Okay. So I want to know how, how this all started. Tell me about growing up and tell me where your love of mythology came from. And is it something you thought was going to be a career? So, um, I mean, definitely not to that. Even when I was doing my degree, I didn't imagine that classics was going to lead to a career. I did it because I just I just loved it. And I don't remember a time when I didn't love Greek mythology because I think I think I was introduced to the world of Greek myth very young because my parents actually had friends who lived in Cyprus. And so some of the um, some photos of me when I was a toddler are in the ancient site of Curion in this in this theatre, um, for example. So I definitely remember being immersed in that world from a really young age and just really loving the stories. 
And it didn't occur to me that that was something that could be more than just a hobby for a really long time. I didn't know that it was something that was available to study, for example, because it definitely wasn't in my high school. Um, it was when I came to do, we, we do A-levels over here in the UK when we're 16. Um, well, we do them when we're 18. We study them for two years before. I went to college to do that. I went to a different college and they offered classics A-level. And that just opened up this entire new world for me where I realized that, oh, this isn't just a diversion. It's not just something I, I do for entertainment. This is something that we can um, approach with this kind of academic focus that uh, there is so much more, there is a whole world to learn about. And I just fell desperately um, in love in love with that. But I didn't, I didn't imagine it would lead me anywhere. I just thought it was something that I enjoyed so much. Mm. I want to go back to to growing up, and we all we all did this. I mean, myths and legends was often one of my favourite sections in a library, you know, and it would have been for you for sure. Yeah. But did you imagine that you would be at the time they were the books you were reading? Did you imagine then that these stories? you could retell them like, oh, yeah, I've loved this book, put it down, you're a teenager. Maybe this is what they're doing afterwards. Was that your thinking? So at, at some point, you know, that, that <laughs> to me, but it took, it took longer, you know, in retrospect than I wish it had done because I think um, I definitely, so I still treat the myths with a lot of respect and reverence, but I definitely kind of imagined them to be quite untouchable, I think, for a long time. Or I didn't think that I had the authority, maybe, um, yes. to be a person who would retell them. And I think that this is partly because when I was reading them as a child, and I think this is something that is changing now, but certainly the versions I read as a child, these were the stories of the heroes, and it was about the battles they were fighting and the quests they were going on and their interactions with the gods. And the female characters whose stories I have now come to retell um, were sidelined in those stories. And they didn't, they, they weren't playing an active role. They weren't driving the plot forward. They were there to serve that hero's journey, whether it was as, you know, a love interest or a mother or some kind of wicked witch antagonist. Those were the roles they were playing. They weren't the primary characters. And it took you know, I just wish the penny had dropped sooner. <laughs> but, you know, it took until I was in my mid-30s um, to think, oh, hold on. And it was actually reading the story of Theseus and the Minotaur to my own son, who at the time was about kind of five or six years old, um, when he said to me, oh, did, what what, did, what happened to Ariadne at the end of this story? Because she kind of disappears out of the story. And I thought, yeah, no, things do happen to Ariadne after this story. I yes. do know that to her life than this but where is it where where's the novel of this um, and because I couldn't find one I decided oh I think I think do you know what I think I will write it okay all right what were you reading what kind of genre reader were you or you were just were you a prolific reader what what were you reading growing up so I've always read quite broadly so kind of not not just in, in one particular genre Growing up, I really, really loved um, Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> that was like a really seminal <laughs> book in my life. Um, and, and, you know, that's a really active heroine who, who drives the plot forward, who does a lot. Um, I went through a phase of um, being obsessed with vampire fiction, interview with the vampire, kind of you know, really, and that led me down a gothic rabbit hole. And then it was Dracula. I knew you were going to say gothic, because I think there's an element of that in writing uh, mythological fiction. 
There, I mean, there really is. I think you yes. come up against the question of sort of immortal, powerful creatures and, and you know, how they can have relationships with mortals. And it's definitely, it's all in there, all of those themes. And yes, I love the Gothic. I really, really loved, um, you know, just reading commercial women's fiction. Marion Keyes is one of my favourite authors. Oh, we and love her. She, I mean, yeah. And that that was the kind of book that I thought I was going to write all the time that I, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I, I wanted to be like her. But actually, all of my attempts to write novels like that fell completely flat because that was not my voice in the slightest. So at what point, tell me the trajectory of your career, right? So then you go to university and you're studying. I mean, you know, you're going to King's College. At what point did you start thinking, I'm going to do something with this? So after university, I went into English teaching. I kind of, I had a sort of a, a short period working at a law firm just as a, as, um, in, as a secretary. And I thought, you know, this isn't the kind of job that I want to do because um, I felt it was very much just kind of focused on making money. And I wanted, I thought, you know, I really want to do something that feels like it's got <laughs> a more worthwhile purpose. Um, and I thought English teaching was was the right thing to do. And I did that, as you said in the introduction, for 13 years. Um, and that was a way for me of... I could bring classics into that, you know, I could bring Greek myth into English teaching because it's referenced in so many, so many works of literature. Um, it was a way of sharing this love of of, of books, of writing um, with students and that kind of, you know, working as English teacher, having my own children, I would say really clouded that desire that I'd always had to write for a little while because I was too busy and I was too tired for a very long time um, and it was when my youngest child was four years old and I was 35 years old and he finally started sleeping through the night I thought you know what I have a little bit of headspace I have a little bit of brain space I have always wanted to write a novel. I'd had this idea about Ariadne and I actually made it a New Year's resolution that I would write a novel from start to finish for the first time. Wow. And how did you approach that? Did you know how to write a novel? No. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Um, I had no idea whatsoever. Um, But, but, you know, I suppose I had read a lot of books and I had studied the construction of books um, in in my job. Um, So, you know, I suppose I was going in with that knowledge. But I really, I am... You know, I had all of my books from university to do the research into the all the other characters, the events of the myth, um, all the different versions that I was going to draw on. So I put all that research together. I sketched an outline out in a notebook and I just started writing. Um, and, you know, and I think that once you have that first draft, then you can shape it into something that is actually good. Right. So when you say you just started writing, did you then approach it where, you, you know, it was a job? You would go and sit at your desk. In, in the, How much time did you allocate? Did you give yourself a word count? Or was it, you know, I have to write till three o'clock? Or tell me your approach because, you know, writing as an English teacher or writing for study, as we, you know, it, it's obvious that it's very, very different to writing fiction. And, you know, we're talking about 90,000 words, 100,000 words. Tell me the plan around just getting through the craft of writing. So, I mean, I definitely had to be quite structured and disciplined with my time because, uh, because like I said, I had a job, had a young family. Um, and I think um, there was, 
there was kind of a leap to be made to realize if I want to write this, I will have to prioritize it. And sometimes there will be other things, you know, competing for my time and I will have to say, no, I am going to write. So, you know, I'm taking a Sunday morning or, you know, an evening after work or um, whatever it was to kind of carve out those blocks of time and to plan ahead for the week. So I knew what my writing sessions were going to be and what that was going to look like. I don't think that I've ever, I've ever done word count targets particularly um, because I find that if I try to do that, then, you know, in order to hit that target, you can just end up writing a lot, a lot of stuff that's going to get deleted. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I did that, but I definitely kept track of obviously how many words I had. And I think the higher that number climbs, the more, the more in it you are and the more you think, I'm not going to go back now. I'm not going to give up as you get to kind of the, you know, 10,000 words and then it's 20,000 words. I think every time I hit sort of another 10,000 words, then that was a, that was a thing to celebrate. That was a thing to feel really proud yeah. of. And then I definitely think that setting yourself those goals along the way, it's a way to make it feel more manageable. And I still do that now. So I'd still say, you know, my goal is to write this particular scene or to get to the end of this chapter or to get to this like really bit that I'm really excited to write because, you know, I know that something really fun is coming up because Greek mythology is full of really, um, really exciting things. So that was how I think I stayed motivated to keep going. Also, I told everyone I was writing a novel so that they would ask me, how's the novel going? And I would feel compelled to have written more so that I didn't have to say I've given up. Uh, and that, and you know, you just keep writing kind of one word at a time, one sentence at a time, and you you get to the end. I think there's two schools of thought about telling people, like, you know, we're talking about any project. I'm like you. I'm the person that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to tell everybody that I'm going to do it because then I will do it because I've told so many people. But I know a lot of people who don't say anything until it's done. And I don't have the same discipline. I think that's a discipline. Okay. So you're writing fiction and it's mythological fiction. It's set in a already made up world. What is it with every fiction book, and you know this and I know this, you have place as a character and place has to resonate, place has to work, otherwise the reader won't be interested. What kind of research do you do in this area to make sure that that's authentic? Yeah, so that, yeah, there there are kind of two strands of research for me because there's the sort of the literary research into the actual, the myth, the storytelling. And then there is, like you said, the world building. And when it comes to trying to recreate a Bronze Age world that feels convincing, it's hard. The the research is difficult because that world exists to us now in fragments and in ruins and there are pieces missing and um, that you know, there are things that we do not know about how people lived all that time ago. Um, because even when I'm taking, you know, my sort of earliest texts that I would use for research would be Homer. And I used the Odyssey, for example, where Odysseus travels and he goes to all of these different all of these different people's homes. And that that was something I thought, well, I can use this to try and recreate a domestic setting. But you know, Homer's Homer's epics are composed in the eighth century. And that's 500 years after the Dark Ages has happened. Um, so there's there is a lot that 
that is obviously not going to be authentic and correct about that as well. Um, we've got the archaeological finds. Um, I was writing, certainly my second novel I wrote during lockdown. And um, my first novel I wrote, like I said, with, with, with a job and kids. And so going to travel to archaeological sites was not an option. Um, but museums are an option. Even in lockdown, when we couldn't even go to museums, looking at virtual collections online is a way to get a sense of the textures and the colours and the materials and the feel of everything. I think there's like a certain amount of license because also this is, like we said, it is a fantasy world. And some of the things that happen are so very deeply rooted in magic and the divine that it it gives you a little bit of leeway, I think. But the main thing was that I don't want somebody to be jolted out of that world by something that is just going to be really jarringly incorrect mm. so those are things and I think every historical novelist and um, not that my books are historical but you know everyone who's writing books that are set in the past is going to come up against a you know you just think I just need to write just this one paragraph to get me from one place to another and that this one paragraph will take you about two hours to research because suddenly you'll think but what are they sitting on and what are they eating mm. and what are they wearing mm. And it takes you, you know, it can take you so long to build that connective tissue. Mm. Um, but that is a really, you know, I want to be immersed in the world and mm. I want my, I want to carry my reader along with me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I found, I mean, you, you know this as well, that, you know, readers are discerning, particularly readers mm. of this genre. You, you, you've got to sell them on everything, on every aspect. They've got to be on that journey with you. I want to go back to at what point do you think I've finished writing, I've got something? How did you feel well, when did you feel, well, maybe this is something that I can sell, that I can start shopping around, that maybe I want this to be published? So I want to know when you started thinking about that and then where did you start? So that is such a strange thing because I think when you're writing first draft, a lot of it is not good. Everybody's good. first drafts are not good. Practice. Yeah, but at the same time, in order to keep going with that first draft, you you do have to have that conviction that it is going to be something good. I think you have to have you 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 have that that faith and that ability to see its potential. I suppose. So I felt that really as soon as I started writing Ariadne, I felt oh. like I've got something here, and I just. And I think it's really hard to say because, um, you know, you want to be very self-effacing and modest. But I just I just thought 
this yeah. is a book that I know I would want to read. And I think that's maybe the crucial thing. And that's probably because I'd messed around and I tried writing in other genres and I'd written books that I thought I should write, but not really. Well, I hadn't ever got, got all the way through, but I'd started to write books mm. that I thought I should be writing. And this was the one that I that I loved when I had those writing sessions, when I had that time that was just for me to write this book, I loved the experience of writing it. And which isn't to say that it's not sometimes frustrating and difficult and, you know, you you get stuck. But overall, I loved it. And as I was writing, I just thought, if I feel like this writing it, I think somebody will feel like this when they read it. And then I had, (laughs) so I did, I did have faith in it from the start and that's probably one of the things that kept me going and then I had a slightly unusual journey to signing with the agent that I signed with because I started I was probably about halfway into the first draft around kind of 40,000 words 45,000 words maybe and I thought you know I'm going to start researching agents to get ready to submit Um, and I was following a lot of different literary agents on Twitter and trying to get a feel for who's looking for this kind of genre who's going to be a good person to represent me and then it was around May or June I think that though and I'd started writing in January New Year's resolution and there was this charity auction so sometimes you see these um there was a huge one recently actually to raise money after the earthquake in Turkey and Syria for example this was um back when the headlines were full of um immigrant families separated on the Mexican border so we were seeing lots of pictures of children Mm. in it was very it was really heartbreaking mm. um images that we were seeing um from that and so there's um somebody's uh, a comedian a writer a woman called amy mason set up um a publishing auction and so there might be you know signed copies of books that authors would offer but what people were offering on the publishing side was feedback so editors and agents were saying you can have a half hour zoom call or i'll read the first 50 mm. pages of your manuscript and so there was a particular agent, Juliet Mushins. I really wanted her to represent me. She was my dream agent. I knew she was looking for something in the mythical genre. I knew that was her thing. And she offered a critique on the first 50 pages. And I had 50 pages. I didn't have a whole book. I bid on that prize and I sent it to her. And she said, can I see the full manuscript? I really like it. And I had to say, I don't have a full manuscript because I haven't written it. Um, and she said, well, come back to me when you do. So that really, I guess that gave me a bit of rocket fuel to get the book finished. Um, I finished it in August. So kind of start to finish, it was about eight months. I sent it straight to her in this fit of enthusiasm, thinking she's interested, she likes it. I think in retrospect, I probably would have held back and sent something a bit more polished. Um, but luckily, Julia. I, I guess like me, she could see the potential in this book. And so she did, she did offer to represent me. And it was you know, one, of the, one of the greatest moments of my life. I can imagine. I have heard so many stories in terms of paths to publishing and how people find their agents or how people meet their agents and how they get to being published. But I have never heard your story before. <laughs> that is a first that you won a prize for an agent to read it. I love that. I know. It definitely had a kind of, you know, we say now it was destiny and it had that kind of feel about it. I'm always a little bit hesitant to talk about it because it's so unhelpful to anybody else because, you know, it's not sort of 
I disagree with that, though. I don't think it's unhelpful. I think there is so many paths to being published that you have to try everything. You have to be on the lookout. You have to reach out to people. Otherwise, people don't come looking for you. You don't just get found. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, that's completely the case. So, yeah, okay, I feel better about telling it now. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's a great story. As you know, the agent, getting an agent, is only part one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you have to do a lot of work before she started shopping it around or tell me how you got to being published? Yeah. So, yeah, we definitely say, so, um, because you asked me at the start, how, you know, did I know how to write a novel? And I said, no. And so that was quite evident, I think, from, from the <laughs> And um, that kind of structurally, I had not really got it. You know, the classic thing that we always have like a very saggy middle um, to this novel that need that. I think that's where with editing, you often go back and that's the bit that you're bolstering and strengthening that middle section. I mean, we we with her kind of her editorial notes, because she is, hand, you know, I think some agents are very editorial, some are not. Uh, she absolutely is. That yeah, I did. I mean, I would say pretty much a complete rewrite of it from start to finish. It had originally, it was all in Ariadne's voice, that first draft. But um, if anyone who's read the novel will know, it's now got two narrators. Ariadne's sister, Phaedra, narrates some of the chapters. And so that was something that I put in um, in that in that round of edits. So I did, I did rewrite it. Um, and that took a couple of months. I did work very quickly through the edits, I think because it was just so exciting, you know, it Mm. was just, it was, I I just, it was something I wanted so much that I found it all consuming, you know, completely. It was, it was all I wanted to be doing was polishing this novel and making it good enough to get it out on submission. And so it was actually November that year that she sent it out to publishers, she sent it out to editors she sent it out on a Monday and we had a preempt on the Thursday of the, um, well, we had two preempts. And so that was, <laughs> that was the next greatest moment of my life, apart from my children being born. Of course. Day yeah. <laughs> um, that, yeah. That suddenly there were, yeah, there were two publishers who wanted to take it off the table there and then. And, you know, I'd made it my new year's resolution just to write the first draft by the end of the year. But as it turned out by the end of the year, I had, I had an edited version, I had an agent, and I, I signed a publishing deal. Yeah, well, did you sign a multiple book deal? Yes, I did, yeah, I signed for two books. Right, and now you're up to your third. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm writing my fourth at the moment. Oh, wow, there you go. So did you find the second book easier to write or was it, and did, was it anything that you did in the first differently for the second like uh okay I know better now I'm going to do it this way is there any kind of tips that you can give us between book one and book two yeah I think I learned so much from writing every book you know I just think your craft just develops just simply with practice um is, is one thing yeah people talk about the difficult second novel and I think they talk about that for a good reason and I think the difficulty from that comes you know when I wrote Ariadne it was really unselfconsciously because I didn't know that anybody would ever read that book I hoped they would but I didn't know that they would whereas when you're writing your second book if you're writing under contract then you know somebody's going to read it your agent and your editor are, are contractually obliged to read it um, and that 
introduces like a whole wave of self-doubt, self-criticism that I find to be completely yeah. paralyzing. And it is the it's the enemy to creativity when you are sitting there with this voice in your head, second guessing every single sentence. And I think what you have to do is find a way to silence that voice you know, the the best advice that I got and probably the hardest to follow is not to read any reviews because even the good ones get inside your head in a way that doesn't help because then you think, well, if somebody liked my first book, I've got this to live up to. And if somebody hated my first book, oh, they're going to hate this one as well. Um, so either way, your brain finds a way to to make that a negative, I think. So you, you have to, it, I think it's really difficult because you are, you're desperate for that feedback, that validation, but you have to not read those reviews. You have to not seek them out. You have to not let them take up that space in your head. And um, because you have to recapture, I think, that unselfconscious feeling of writing your first novel, that feeling of, I am just going to go where I want to go and I am not going to think about people's reactions. That's something that you bring in when you're editing, when Mm. you do have to think about all of those things. But I think that first draft is, I think I've heard people refer to it as it's you telling yourself the story and you are the only reader at that point. And Mm. I Mm. think that's, that's the only way to get it done. Hmm. So have you found that as you keep writing that it gets easier? Like you're writing book four now. No. No, no. Do you know not many people say yes to that question? Most people say no. I think it really depends on the book. I think it's like having children, but Mm. um, it's not the same experience the second or the third time around, or as I'm discovering the fourth, that actually each book, I guess, has got its own character, its own personality and its own pitfalls. And when I was writing my second book, it was just as the pandemic hit and we went into lockdowns. And so that brought about the challenges of, whereas some people I think found that period of time was a very creative one. I found it the opposite. I found it really stifling, being stuck at home, not being able to get out anywhere. I found that really difficult. So it was only writing Atalanta, my third novel, that I sort of thought, oh, this is my first experience of writing. Writing is my full-time job now and and the world is as normal as it's going to get. And so that felt new again, kind of a new way to work out my time and my writing schedule and all the rest of it. And then with my fourth novel, I thought I'm going to do exactly what I've done before. And it didn't work. I've recently, not that recently, but, you know, I went back and I got, I don't know, 10, 15,000 words in. I just thought, no, it's I, I need to scrap it. I need to go back to the start. I'd never done that before. I mean, maybe that is something that comes with experience, the ability to recognize, oh, mm. this isn't going right. But yeah, I've just found it a completely, completely different beast to grapple with every time I've done it. Mm. We're out of time. Honestly, such interesting conversation. I think you've given so many aspiring writers some tips there and uh, something for all of us to think about. Well done you as well. Um, Jennifer Saint, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. 
or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Guy Raz, and on my show, Wisdom from the Top, I talk with CEOs and business leaders about the toughest challenges of their careers. There's lots of ways to measure success. Sometimes a company has to bet against itself. We wanted to set ourselves apart by having a point of view. Businesses really impact people's lives in pretty fundamental ways. On Wisdom from the Top, some of the greatest business leaders of our time share their intimate stories of leadership, innovation, and transformation. Stories you won't hear anywhere else. Check out Wisdom from the Top only on Luminary. Now, back to your show. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.